Chapter Eighteen, Part Three of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume Two by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen, Part Three The Personality of Clara Barton. Her voice has already been mentioned. Its key was about the average pitch of a woman's treble voice. In conversation, it was flexible and very pleasant. On the platform, it was clear and penetrating. Her tones were not musical, but were distinctly agreeable. Her inflections were those of the gentlewoman of the old school. There was a soothing, conciliatory, almost caressing quality in her voice. It had no harsh notes. It was diametrically opposite to all that was harsh and strident. It was gentle, winsome, and in every accent suggestive of courtesy and good breeding. When she lived abroad, no one accused her of a high, harsh, nasal American voice. It was a New England voice, but as soft as that of any southern lady of the old days. But when Clara Barton grew very much in earnest, her voice changed. That change was one of the most remarkable things about her. It did not rise. It did not grow harsh or self-asserting. It dropped a half-octave, or, as it sometimes seemed, a full octave. It was a deep, full voice. It was almost bass her eyes darkened as her voice went down and flashed lightning to her tone's quiet thunder. She had a temper, which she kept well under control, but when she spoke in a low tone, those who heard her knew that its fires were red. She was modest in her dress, but she had an eye for bright colors. In her youth, she was a painter, and she learned how to mix colors on her palette. She never felt so sure of her good taste in the matter of dress as she did of her ability to make pleasing contrasts on canvas. She trusted much to the good judgment of her friend, Annie Childs. When she followed her own judgment, she inclined to green, which she loved to set off with red. Red was her color, and she said, The Barton Rose was the red rose, all the way from the wars of the roses down. She loved red roses. She loved red apples. She liked to wear red ribbons and trimmings. With a background of green, red was always safe. In her youth and young womanhood, she often determined to vary her costume and repeatedly went to the stores determined to buy something beside green. Her nieces said, If Aunt Clara says she is going to town to buy a brown dress, we know that she will buy a brown dress. For Aunt Clara invariably does exactly what she says she will do. So we know that she will select and pay for a brown dress. But we also know that by the time she gets it home, the color will have changed. When she opens the package, it is sure to have become green. 
in later years dressmakers took her in hand and widened the range of her choice but she seldom appeared in any gown that did not lend itself to a little dash of red and when she wore just what delighted her own eyes her dress was green with a complimentary dash of red something must be said about her habit of economy and it must be said with some care lest it give a very wrong impression clara barton was economical to a very marked degree if a list of her actual economies were here given it would produce on many minds the impression that she was stingy this would be wide of the truth if a valid distinction may be made between two words that are nearly synonymous she was parsimonious but was not penurious she was reared in a community and in a family where want was unknown but where money was earned by hard work and capital was accumulated by thrift and economy it was part of her birthright and of her being there was about her nothing that inclined her to waste or even extravagance she entered into life early as a teacher at first at a small salary she had opportunity to save and she did save her necessary expenses were small and she began at the outset to save money she continued to save money she had good business judgment and excepting for a few times when she permitted her sympathies or her friendships to get the better of that judgment her investments conservatively made were remunerative when she first went abroad in eighteen sixty nine she knew that she had money enough to support her as long as she lived if she recovered her health the lecture platform was still open to her and she could earn and save above all expenses from four thousand dollars to six thousand dollars a year if she returned an invalid she had the income on about thirty thousand dollars which was more than she needed in no year of her life probably did she spend upon herself as much as eighteen hundred dollars even when she traveled abroad her expenses were moderate and she never drew on her principal for her own support but eighteen hundred dollars or two thousand dollars a year which was about what her investments brought her did not invite reckless extravagance she knew that she must exercise reasonable economy and her tastes were such that this was no hardship when therefore she sat up at night rather than take a sleeping car it was not wholly that she was unwilling to pay for the price of the berth she had been accustomed to doing so until an attempt was made to rob her after which she was greatly disinclined to the use of the sleeper. Her prime reason for sitting up was that she disliked sleepers after that night. But she was not at all averse to saving two dollars. She slept few hours in the night and was accustomed to sleeping under unfavorable conditions. She thought she rested quite as well sitting in a corner of her seat 
as lying in a stuffy and dark berth. Her lunch at home was often a few crackers and a red apple, and the more nearly she regulated her diet when journeying in accordance with her custom at home, the better life went with her. So her bag often contained a little package of the kind of crackers which she liked, and one or more big red apples. If she sat in her seat and ate these, it was not primarily because she was unwilling to pay a dollar for her lunch. She had the dollar, and she had no ambition to leave any considerable sum of money behind her when she died. On the other hand, she was not unmindful of the good she could do with the dollar in some other way, and she did that good with it. She was parsimonious with herself. She was generous toward others. To enumerate her economies would misrepresent her. It would seem that she was niggardly. The contrary was true. She abhorred waste. She could not tolerate extravagance. But she could draw her last dollar, and did draw her last dollar from investment, to put into her search for missing soldiers. And she could do it, and did do it, without whining and without fear. Even the possibility that she might die a pauper did not terrify her or win from her in her diary any more than a half-mirthful recognition. She economized in things she did not greatly care for, that she might do the things that were to her of supreme importance. She did not hoard money, the amount which she had at the end of her lecturing career she did not greatly increase, nor, until she got deep into the work of the Red Cross, did it materially diminish. In order to support the Red Cross work in its earlier stages, she drew upon her principal, and she did not, to the end of her life, restore it to what it had been before. But she never complained of this, nor did it in the least worry her. Year by year she had sufficient income, with reasonable economy, to supply all her needs. Now and then she delivered an address and received a hundred dollars. Occasionally she replied to a request of newspaper or magazine for an article, and received a check in return. For a year she received a salary from the state of Massachusetts as matron of the Reformatory for Women at Sherborne. The annuity paid to her by the Massachusetts General Hospital gave her a little more margin. She was free from worry as to her own finances. I have not found in her diary or her letters a single sentence in which she expressed anxiety about her own financial future. There were several times when she was not sure what she ought to do next, and in her decisions she was not unmindful of financial necessities. But she did not keep in constant thought her own need of saving money for herself. She saved because it was natural for her to save, and because she had causes at heart which she wished to save for. Careful in her expenditures upon herself, 
Clara Barton lavished her love upon others. She cherished her friends, and there was little that she was not willing to do for them. More than once she jeopardized plans of her own for the sake of unselfish ministry to others, some of whom had little claim upon her. She received under her own roof, fed at her table, sheltered at her fireside, and assisted from her purse not a few people who later proved ungrateful. Indeed, those who wrought her most pain were those whom she had befriended and of whom she later learned that they sought not her, but hers. Yet it would not be fair to give any impression that the number of ingrates among her companions was large. Relatively, it was small. Those who loved her loved with a fervent loyalty and there are a few things more beautiful than the adoring and grateful affection which those bestow upon her memory who knew her longest and best. A strong individualist, she inspired in those who came to know her well that perfect confidence and grateful devotion which are the crowning test of leadership. There were those who, for her sake, and that of any cause which she held dear would have gone with her singing to the stake, and she would never have permitted one of them to go there unless she went first. The author was her relative, her friend of many years. He loved her and admired her, but he has felt his own praises weaken and pale and disappear in the presence of those who, working in intimate association with her through the years, proclaim to him her virtues in terms that but for their sincerity and the knowledge of those who spoke would have seemed extravagant. The surest proof of her genuine goodness is the unfaltering devotion of those who knew her best, and for that reason loved her most. Clara Barton was a woman of tact. She needed all the tact she had, and more. In every field in which she labored, she was flooded with volunteer workers who wanted to help. Some of them were competent, more were not. I recently talked with my long-time friend, Father Field, sometime head of the Cowley Fathers, and learned that he was at the Johnstown Flood and saw much of Clara Barton. They rode together in a buggy over a road filled with trees and house roofs, and he feared she would be thrown out. But she told him to drive on. She had driven over worse roads, and with bullets besides. He said that her greatest difficulty, as he saw it there, was the number of people of good impulse but little discretion who rushed into Johnstown to help. Dr. Bellows said a blunt word about the woman who made their journey to the battlefield, that most of them were in the way. This was unfortunately true of many of the well-meaning people who rushed to the assistance of Clara Barton in time of flood or fire. Assistance she must have, and must take what was offered. 
but the handling of this untrained force was a matter which called for the greatest tact as well as executive ability. Not only so, but when the work in a particular field was over, there were always those who had come as volunteer workers who insisted on bestowing themselves upon Clara Barton to make Red Cross work their life work. Some of them were competent, and she was glad of them. But in the course of her years of experience, she accumulated a series of misfit volunteer assistants, some of whom it was not easy afterward to get rid of. She had little love of music. She did not sing or play any musical instrument. When traveling abroad, if forced to attend the opera, she saved the time from utter waste by writing a home letter while singers of world-wide repute performed and sang before her. Having a low and soft voice, she disliked the high notes of women's voices. Good, melodious quartet music she heard with mild enjoyment, and if she can be said to have liked any music, it was that of male voices. A chorus of men always pleased her. Some of the war songs always thrilled her, though more for the associations than the music. There was one song, popular during the later years of the Civil War, which she never heard often enough. It was the song of an old slave, who, dying years before the war, had believed that he would rise on the day when freedom came to his race. The author also remembers it, as it was taught to him almost before he could walk. Nicodemus, the slave, was of African birth. He was bought for a bagful of gold. He was reckoned as part of the salt of the earth, and he died years ago, very old. Twas the last word he said as we laid him away in the stump of an old hollow tree. Wake me up, was his charge, at the first break of day. Wake me for the great jubilee. Chorus then run and tell Elijah to hurry up, Pomp, to meet us at the gum tree down in the swamp, to wake Nicodemus today. It was sung at the minstrel shows after the Emancipation Proclamation, but it was not as a minstrel show song that Clara Barton enjoyed it. There was a solemn dignity about the old slave's faith that inspired her and the authoritative tones of the words, Wake, Nicodemus, thrilled her through and through. Her lack of love of music reached its climax in her abhorrence of piano drumming. For piano music, she had some little love, but not enough to compensate for the annoyance for having a piano where it could be pounded by any visitor, skilled or unskilled. For many years, she refused to have a piano in her house. At last, she permitted one to be procured, and she gave it house room, and sometimes heard it played with satisfaction. But when she was hard at work and wanted to concentrate her thought, 
she found no joy in the thoughtless hammering which an open piano seemed to invite. There was a time for all things, even for piano playing, and in its proper time and place she could permit it and enjoy a part of it. But she did not want the menace of it from early morn till dewy eve and several hours thereafter. Her home was a very open place of entertainment, and she could not well inquire, before admitting a person who needed shelter, what were his or her habits and ability with respect to the torture of piano keys. So she would have preferred a home with only such music as was brought in where and when it was wanted. But she accepted the piano as in some sort inevitable, and it did not annoy her as much as she had expected. If Clara Barton did not care for music, she did dearly love poetry. From her earliest childhood she was reading it, committing it to memory, copying it, and writing original lines of her own. There lies before me, as I write, her first copy-book. The strokes and curves she learned to imitate her there, then the letters lowercase and capitals then the first words thoughtful nation and national and the sentence chosen perhaps for its varied arrangement of letters with the simplest stem and curve and partly because it was not well for a new england child at school to begin life with any illusion about its essential character Man was made to mourn. Who was the teacher who set her these copies we do not know, but she copied them well. The first poetic lines that she was given to transcribe were these, melodious but not precisely soothing to the juvenile mind. Then rose the cry of females shrill as goshawks whistle on the hill denouncing misery and ill mingled with childhood's bubbling thrill of curses stammered slow answering with imprecation dread sunk be his home in embers red and cursed be the meanest shed that e'er shall hide his houseless head we doom to want and woe this was rather strong sentiment for a timid and sympathetic little girl, and she would probably have shuddered at it in prose, but in verse she probably committed it to memory as she was in process of copying it. This completed the childhood work, and the book is filled, in her more mature hand, with complete poems. The Pilgrim's Fathers, where are they? the burial of arnold the hour of prayer warren at bunker hill the indian's lament the fall of tecumseh and other poems heroic patriotic devotional and ending with farewell to the bride later she procured a bound volume and in it she copied her favorite poems and wrote others of her own in her most careful and painstaking hand, 
her copper plate penmanship was never more exquisite than in this volume in which her own poems and the poems she loved are written in order as she found or composed them no quality in clara barton was more marked than the breath of her sympathies she shuddered at the thought of needless pain i have a crude little picture a page out of a child's book which she found in her childhood and preserved to the end of her life it is entitled what came of firing a gun a dead bird lies on the ground and is approached on the one side by a boy with a gun in his hand and on the other by a horrified girl it is not a great work of art but it tells its story and conveys its lesson she never gave needless pain she regarded all life as akin to the life of god and sacred with the imprint of god's own image she looked upon all life that can suffer or enjoy the life of bird and beast and fish as something on which it is a sin to inflict needless pain from the time she saw in her little girlhood the killing of an ox and felt that the blow that struck and crushed its skull had struck her own head she never saw pain without feeling it she could have said with whitman of the suffering she saw my wounds on me grow livid as i lean upon my staff and look she did not merely sympathize with suffering she suffered she was not only glad of other people's joy it was her joy she rejoiced with those that did rejoice and wept with those that wept not often do her diaries record her weeping and the tears she records as having shed are oftener for others sorrows than for her own her sympathy was genuine and of the sort which can truly be called vicarious she took it upon herself her sympathies were so strong that she would have been useless in the presence of danger and pain but for her remarkable self-control i asked her once how she acquired this and she said it was simply by forgetting herself she saw something that needed to be done and went about the doing of it so promptly so completely absorbed by the necessity of it that she forgot to be horrified by the sight of blood forgot to faint as timid females were supposed to do days and weeks and months and years of it she would endure and never once give way then would come a revulsion and a horror and a weakness and a collapse again and again she held herself in hand through nervous strain that would have crushed most women or men and when it was all over went nervously to pieces it appears a pity that being capable of maintaining her self-control till the end of the crisis she could not still have maintained it when the need was over but it was a part of her delicately strung organism to bear any manner of strain while the need lasted and then to snap the remarkable fact is not 
that she ultimately gave way, but that she endured so long and so much. Clara Barton was a woman to her fingertips. Nothing that she saw or suffered ever coarsened her or made her oblivious to the finer things of life. Nothing that came of her association with men, and rough men at that, made her anything less than a woman and a lady. She was distinctly feminine. She had her own way of ignoring any incident occurring in her presence at which she might have been expected to be shocked, but of stickling at any trivial act which implied that she was indifferent to proprieties. Teamsters, with their wagons deep to the hubs in mud, might swear at their mules, and she would never hear it. But at night, by the campfire, she could rebuke with a quiet and effective word or look the slightest approach to impropriety of word or deed. She was no prude when she had a duty to perform, and conventionalities meant little to her in the presence of human need. But on her return to home life, she was gentle, ladylike, and a stickler for proprieties. She had no love for the mannish woman. She was much in the society of men. In many respects, she preferred the society of men to that of women. She entered into their joys and experiences appreciatively. But in it all, she was distinctly feminine. She was a woman always, a lady always. People who expected to meet in her a big, aggressive female, with a long stride and a heavy voice and a domineering attitude, were amazed. She was a little, undemonstrative gentlewoman of the old school. One of Clara Barton's most outstanding qualities was her almost complete disregard of precedent. The fact that a thing had always been done in a given way was evidence to her that it could be done again in that fashion, but was of almost no value to her as proving that that was the best way to do it. She always had faith in the possibility of something better. It irritated her to be told how things always had been done she knew that a very large proportion of things that have been done since the creation have been blunderingly done and she was always ready to listen to suggestions of better ways having once decided upon a course that defied the tyranny of precedent she held true to her declaration of independence and saw her experiment through in this she was not reckless or iconoclastic. She simply forbade herself the cheap luxury of a closed mind. If no better way presented itself, she was content with the old way of doing. But she was eager for any new thing that might improve upon the past. Hers was preeminently a forward-looking mind and a soul with face ever toward the sunrise. End of chapter 18, part 3.